All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Dugman standing in the confessional corner this Monday afternoon to continue our walk through the fifth article of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. This week we take up paragraphs 97 to 111, where Melanchthon goes on to prove from the passages that the adversaries misuse that faith without love is nothing. So we look at paragraphs 97 to 99. Now we will reply to those passages that the adversaries quote in order to prove that we are justified by love and works. From 1 Corinthians 13, 2, they quote, If I have all faith, but have not love, I am nothing. Here they triumph greatly. Paul testifies to the entire church, they say, that faith alone does not justify. But a reply is easy after we have shown above what we teach about love and works. This passage of Paul requires love. We also require this. But we have said above that renewal and beginning to fulfill the law must exist in us, according to Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. If anyone should cast away love, even though he has great faith, he does not keep his faith, for he does not keep the Holy Spirit. Nor indeed does Paul in this passage talk about the way of justification. Instead, he writes to those who after they have been justified, should be urged to bring forth good fruit, lest they lose the Holy Spirit. Okay, we look at this from 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. And yes, Paul does say, If I have all faith, so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. They, of course, ellipse that part in their quotation of it. But Melanchthon says, just like Paul, just like Jeremiah, if anyone should cast away love, even though they have great faith, the faith does not stay. Faith minus love equals nothing. Not because love makes faith, but because love proceeds from faith. In the 11th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, it's written, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then further on, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith without love, that love is that acknowledgement of God existing, but also seeking after the rewards that come from God, because we understand that God is a loving Heavenly Father. We continue on into paragraph 100 through uh, 103. Furthermore, the adversaries treat the matter in a ridiculous way. They quote one passage in which Paul teaches about fruit, yet they leave out many other passages in which he discusses the way of justification in a regular order. Besides, they always add a correction to the other passages that speak of faith, namely that the passages are to be understood as applying to faith formed by love. They, do, they add no correction that there is also need for faith, which believes we are counted righteous for Christ's sake as the atonement. So the adversaries exclude Christ from justification and teach only a righteousness of the law. But let us return to Paul. No one can conclude anything more from this text than this. Love is necessary. We confess this. It is also necessary not to steal. But the reasoning will not be correct if someone would put the argument like this. Not to commit theft is necessary. Therefore, not to commit theft justifies. Justification is not the approval of a particular work, but of the per entire person. 
Therefore, this passage from Paul does not harm us. Only the adversaries must not add to it whatever they please by imagination. Paul does not say that love justifies. He says, I am nothing. In other words, faith, however great it may have been, is extinguished. He does not say that love overcomes the terrors of sin and death, that we may can set our love against God's wrath and judgment, or that our love satisfies God's law. He does not say that we have access to God by our love without Christ as the atoning sacrifice, that we receive the promised forgiveness of sins by our love. Paul says nothing about this. He does not therefore think that love justifies, because we are justified only when we receive Christ as the atoning sacrifice and believe that for Christ's sake God is reconciled to us. Neither is justification even to be dreamed of without Christ as the atonement. If there is no need of Christ, if we can overcome death by our love, if we have access to God by our love without Christ as the atonement, then let our adversaries remove the promise about Christ. Let them abolish the gospel. The adversaries corrupt very many passages because they bring to them their own opinions and do not derive the meaning from the passages themselves. For what difficulty is there in this passage if we remove the interpretation that the adversaries attach to it out of their own mind? They do not understand what justification is or how it occurs. The Corinthians, being justified before, had received many excellent gifts. In the beginning, they glowed with zeal, just as is generally the case. Then dissensions began to arise among them, as Paul points out. They began to dislike good teachers, so Paul rebuked them, calling them back to offices of love. These are necessary. Yet it would be foolish to imagine that works of the second table, through which we interact with humans and not properly with God, justify us. But in justification, we interact with God. His wrath must be appeased and conscience must be eased before God. None of these things happen through the works of the second table. Melanchthon differentiates between the two tables of the law. The first table being the first three commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God and remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. All three of these talk about God. All three of these are how we interact with God properly. 4 through 10, with honoring parents and murder and committing adultery and stealing, uh, bearing false witness and coveting. These are all great, but these are how we interact with each other. These have a tangential way of us interacting with God, but it is not in a justifying manner. Justification deals with the first three commandments. It deals with the first table of the law. Not with how we deal with our neighbors and how we treat our neighbors, but how we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. He continues on in paragraphs 104 through 106, continuing on to the end of 1 Corinthians 13. But they object that love is preferred to faith and hope. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the greatest of these is love. Now, it is reasonable that the greatest and chief virtue should justify. Yet Paul in this passage properly speaks about love toward one's neighbor and indicates that love is the greatest because it has the most fruit. Faith and hope have to do only with God, but love has infinite offices outwardly toward humanity. Indeed, let us grant to the adversaries that love toward God and our neighbor is the greatest virtue, because the chief commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. But how will they conclude from this that love justifies? They say the greatest virtue justifies. By no means. For just as the greatest or first law does not justify, so also the law's greatest virtue does not justify. 
But the virtue that justifies receives Christ, which brings to us Christ's merits, by which we receive grace and peace from God. This virtue is faith. As it has been often said, faith is not just knowledge, but it is willing to receive or take hold of those things that are offered in the promise about Christ. Furthermore, this obedience toward God, for example, to want to receive the offered promise, is no less a divine service than his love. God wants us to believe him and to receive from him blessings. He declares this to be true divine service. So yes, love is greater than faith and hope because love has more fruit. Love can be seen more readily than the fruit of faith and the fruit of hope. Why? Because love is toward our neighbor. Faith and hope are toward God. I mean, after all, we looked at it from Hebrews 11 just a few minutes ago. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence, the firm conviction of things not seen. Now, as we look at faith, hope, and love in this passage, in all of Paul even, yes, Love is considered the greatest because love is the one that is most readily seen. You cannot have faith, but seem to be like a loving person. You can have no hope in this life and still see seen as a loving person. But if you're a loving person and have no faith, have no hope, that love is fruitless. And all of the all of the good works that you do boil down to nothing. Add them all up into a heap, and there's still nothing. Because it is faith and hope that drive love toward our neighbor. That is why the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is love has nothing to do with justification. It has simply the way we treat other people. As we move on into the last couple of paragraphs for this week, we're in paragraph 108 through 111. The adversaries base justification on love because they everywhere teach and require the righteousness of the law. We cannot deny that love is the law's highest work. Human wisdom gazes at the law and seeks justification in it. So the scholastic doctors, great and talented men, proclaim love as the law's highest work and base justification on this work. Deceived by human wisdom, they do not look upon the uncovered, but upon the veiled face of Moses, just like the Pharisees, philosophers, and followers of Muhammad. But we preach the foolishness of the gospel, in which another righteousness is revealed. For Christ's sake, as the atonement, we are counted righteous when we believe that God has been reconciled to us for Christ's sake. Neither are we ignorant about how far distant this teaching is from the judgment of reason and the law. Nor are we ignorant that the law's teaching about love makes a much greater show, for it is wisdom. But we are not ashamed of the gospel's foolishness. We defend this truth for the sake of Christ's glory and ask Christ by his Holy Spirit to help us so that we may be able to make this clear and obvious. I'm going to stop here for a moment because I go into a new proof text from the adversaries, but I want to talk about this for a second. We cannot deny that love is the law's highest work. I mean, that is 
what is very self-evident has been said by the mouth of Jesus himself. Because love is the basis of the law. But, I want to point out this line from paragraph 108 again. Deceived by human wisdom, they do not look upon the uncovered, but upon the veiled face of Moses, just like the Pharisees, philosophers, and followers of Muhammad. So these are the three big dangers in the Reformation. Seeking to be wise, the Roman theologians imitate the Pharisees and the ancient Israelites by not looking upon the unveiled face of Moses as he comes out from the tent of meeting, but looking upon the veiled face. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, we see that looking through the veil, looking through just the letter of the law, yes, the Pharisees were very good with it. The philosophers trying to find a way to create morality without God. And then the followers of Muhammad. Now, the Muslims were getting ready to attack the Roman Empire, and that is why, first of all, the Diet of Augsburg was called in 1530. Was Emperor Charles V wanted all of the church stuff to be taken care of so that they can get down to building an appropriate opposition force to the invading Turks. But again, you have the problem. Do we look at the veiled face of Moses, or do we look at the Son of God? This is the choice that Melanchthon says we have to make. And the Reformers are saying we look at the face of God. Not because we are so great, but because he has been gracious to us. He has justified us, and in that way shows us his love so that we might love other people. Continuing on in paragraphs 110 and 111. The adversaries in the confutation have also quoted Colossians 3.14 against us. Love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. From this they conclude that love justifies because it makes people perfect. Although a reply about perfection could be made here in many ways, we will simply recite Paul's meaning. It is certain that Paul spoke about love toward one's neighbor. We must not think that Paul would credit either justification or perfection to the works of the second table, rather to the works of the first. If love makes people perfect, then there will be no need for Christ as the atonement, for faith receives Christ as the only atonement. This is far distant from Paul's meaning, who never allows Christ to be excluded as the atonement. Therefore, he speaks not about personal perfection, but about the integrity common to the church. For this reason, he says that love is a bond or connection to show that he speaks about the binding and joining together of the many members of the church. 
In all families and in all states, unity should be nourished by mutual offices, and peace cannot be maintained unless people overlook and forgive certain mistakes among themselves. In a similar way, Paul commands that there should be love in the church in order that it may preserve unity, bear with the harsher manners of brethren as there is need, and overlook certain less serious mistakes. This must happen or else the church will fly apart into various schisms and hostilities and factions and heresies will arise from the schisms. All right, so we talk about Colossians 3.14 and the unity that love is supposed to bring. But Melanchthon reminds his readers that love covers a multitude of sins. Love, to be true love, has to allow the fact that other people are sinners and to forgive them and to overlook the sins of their past, to overlook the sins committed against them so that the unity can be established and maintained. We'll talk about more of this unity next week as Melanchthon goes into a little bit deeper on this as well as other passages because he does not want the reformers to be seen as those who are trying to make schisms in the church. They are truly trying to reform the church and take out the abuses that have crept in. They are trying to show the love of Christ to their adversaries even though the adversaries want nothing more than to silence them in whatever way necessary, even putting them to death if necessary. But that is not unity, is it? That is not love. Well, that's all for this week. I will pick up again next week with the topic of unity again as we seek to continue our trek through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, where Melanchthon is trying to get the Roman theologians to truly understand what was in the confession and what it truly means for love to proceed from faith and not faith having to be formed from love. And we'll have this for the next few weeks as we continue through the fifth article of the Apology. But I encourage you to Continue listening to the Confessional Corners, the Digging Deeper, the Pro Wrestling America, if you are interested in that, the Moments of Meditation and the Sermons. All of these things are there as my way of helping to helping you to wrestle with the theologies around us because these things are not something just from the 16th century. These things are still going on today. These things are still going on in the church and in the world. And we as Christians need to know how we are to wrestle against them, what we can use. And that main thing that we need to use is the Word of God. And that is why we have sections of the confessions like this where they take the passages that the Roman theologians are using to beat the reformers over the head saying how wrong they are and showing what they truly mean in their context, whether it's in just the epistle that it's in or in all of the reading of Paul or all of the reading of Peter or whatever other writing that they pick up because context is king. And that is how we learn to wrestle with theology. Amen.